and welcome to Cool Story Guys. I'm Jeff. I'm Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about loyalty. Ethan, what are you loyal to in your life? Wow, Jeff, this is two podcasts in a row where you start out with the heavy hitters here. What am I loyal to? My family, my friends, the Constitution. Yeah, the Constitution is very important for loyalty. <laughs> I don't know. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think family, friends. I try to be loyal to myself. I think that's the most important thing to be loyal to, you know? Okay. That's an interesting take. Being loyal to yourself might be called selfishness. Uh, I guess it's based on a hierarchy, you know, a ranking system. <laughs> if your self-loyalty is number one and your like child's loyalty is like five, that's selfish, you know? Okay. I think mine's like a solid four. Would you say in general that you're a loyal person? Do others count on you for your loyalty? I would say so. I watched enough reality TV to see the negative side of not having loyal people around you. And the only way to really collect loyal people is to be relatively loyal yourself. So no, I would say, I would say so. Okay, you're one of the good housewives. I'm the good housewife that's just recently divorced, feeling pretty good, have a little resources on my side, no longer need to act happy in a loveless marriage. Okay. So yeah, I like it. Precisely. <laughs> That's on my LinkedIn profile, that description. <laughs> How about you, Jeff? What are you loyal to? I am also loyal to friends and family, and I suppose myself as well. I like to think that I am a loyal person, and I will stick by those that I love in times of hardship and try to do right by them the best that I can. I mean, everybody wants loyal people in their life. And I try to make sure that I don't let people down. You mentioned in the last episode that letting people down is one of your core fears. Yeah. I agree. I also don't want to let people down. But more so than, say, honesty, I feel that loyalty is one of those slippery virtues that becomes dangerous if you lean into it too heavily. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the idea of Aristotle's golden mean? <laughs> Refresh me. <laughs> so... Aristotle's golden mean is the idea that truly moral behavior is the average between two extremes. So imagine that there's an imaginary scale for your actions, and at one end you have a deficiency of the virtue, and at the other you have an excess. And to be a moral person, you have to strive to find a perfectly moderate position between those two extremes. Yeah. I learned about this idea from a really good book by Michael Schur, the guy who created the TV show The Good Place called How to Be Perfect. <laughs> and it's a moral philosophy book for people like me who are generally interested in the topic, but need a funny person to explain it to them yeah. in very basic terms. <laughs> and it's an insightful and very entertaining book. And he talks about the golden mean a lot in it. And loyalty is one of those virtues that I feel really applies to this concept. If you have no loyalty, you're basically a terrible, unreliable person whom nobody else can depend on for even the simplest things. But if you have too much loyalty, you put yourself and others at harm because you've placed the preservation of some extraneous idea over common sense. Mm -hmm. Even with that, extreme loyalty is one of those things that is weirdly celebrated by a lot of people, even though it feels completely toxic to others. Mm -hmm. Where do you feel like you fit in in the golden mean for loyalty? Are you right in the middle, or are you tilting one way or the other? Oh, man. I think I'm relatively close to the middle. I kind of maybe lean towards being 
too loyal at times, but I think I have a pretty good amount of common sense as well. I have circles of influence in my life, okay? If you're in my family, you get a little bit more leeway than like if you're somebody I go and watch football with once a month. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A family member who decides that they want to become a horrific person, I'll try to talk them down. But if you're, you know, Larry having a a day of football with me and you decide you want to be a bad person, I'm just done with that, you know? So it, it really depends on where you are in my social circle. So, but again, I'm only human. I have my faults and I have my people that I love more than anything. And uh, yeah, it's tough sometimes to have too much common sense when that oxytocin is pumping in your brain. Sure. Let's play a little game. I'll mention some different types of loyalty, and we can decide where we fit in the golden mean and whether or not we need to make some important changes in our lives. Does that sound good? This sounds perfect. (laughs) Let's start with a simple one. Brand loyalty. Where do you think you fit in the golden mean for brand loyalty? Oh, boy. Towards the not loyal side. Okay. I don't care. You don't care. I don't care. Not at all. Hmm. Okay. You see, I feel like, personally, I'm on the more extreme side. I feel like I am loyal to brands more than necessarily I need to be. And not every brand. I just have my brands that are like, if it's not Heinz ketchup, it tastes bad. (laughs) Is is that your... That's one of them. And I mean, maybe that's a product of having lived in Europe for several years, and European ketchup is gross, and it's full of sugar, and ketchup is supposed to be acidic, and Heinz ketchup is the way that ketchup is supposed to taste. And so I am extremely brand loyal to Heinz ketchup. I think it's funny that we're sitting on two different ends of the spectrum and in some ways, by default, you should be coaxing me to your side, and you start off with Heinz ketchup. Not Apple, not Mitsubishi, but Heinz ketchup. I appreciate that. There's something sweet about that, Jeff. Thank you for that. You know what isn't sweet? Heinz ketchup. It's acidic. <laughs> it tastes good on food. <laughs> you don't like the sugary tomato syrup offered by German grocery stores? That's funny. No, Germans just love to put sugar in all of their condiments. It blows my mind. But thankfully, Heinz is one of those brands that, you know, made it over to Europe and is regularly available in the grocery store. So it's it's not really a problem. Thank God. Thank God for John Kerry's wife's extended family. <laughs> okay, next one. This one's a little more difficult. Loyalty to your country. Ooh. Um, man, this is a difficult one. I'll say this. The concept of America, okay, not the behind closed doors things, but the concept I'm into. Mm -hmm. It's a ranking system again at the end of the day, like, are bad guys trying to invade the country like real bad guys and not artificial bad guys? And are they coming to my hometown to try to like murder my family? Sure, I'll be loyal to my country on that side. Not super loyal to the bad stuff, you know, like the toxic invasion of other countries for no apparent reason. Don't love that. I don't know. That's a really tough one. Put me right in the middle. I'm going to default to the middle on this one. Yeah, that sounds healthy. Yeah. Where 
you know, you might get pushed to the extreme if there's a Red Dawn situation. Exactly. This is exactly where the Red Dawn theory comes into play, Jeff. Thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. So, yes. It's a beautiful piece of propaganda that worked (laughs) very well on you. If the bad guys parachute into our country and we are oblivious to it up until the point they land, then yes, I will do my best to pull together my high school football team and battle them in a very guerrilla-style warfare situation. (laughs) I'm sure that you will be an invaluable asset to our side. I will be a decoy at best. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? It's really weird looking back on the United States from a distance since I moved to Europe and seeing all of the unwavering patriotism back home through a different lens. Because at its core, unwavering patriotism is just extreme loyalty. Yeah. And I live in Germany. Germans have seen firsthand what happens when unwavering patriotism becomes the pervasive train of thought. So, you know, looking back at Americans who are being so loyal that they are trying to overthrow the government is pretty toxic. It's a bad look. Yeah. So I ran away from America. I might never come back. But I still feel a loyalty to the people of America, just not really the organization as a whole. This type of loyalty, more than most others, I feel like I'm so hesitant of the extreme that maybe I skew a little on the deficient side. Yeah, I dig that. America's full of great people. The cogs aren't great. I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. I change from middle to a little bit default to the deficient. Okay, so I was going to ask you what you thought the perfect golden mean for patriotism looks like in action. But you said you're right in the middle. So are you the golden mean for American patriotism, Ethan? Yes. Plainly speaking, I believe that I am a shining light when it comes to how to appropriately love your country. I think people (laughs) should use me as an example a lot more often. I think for that, it has to switch back and forth. During times when your country's doing the right thing, cheer, you know, get those flags out. Uh, When it's not doing a good thing, you should be critical, not, you know, overtly critical about everything because every country's kind of got its skeletons. But yeah, you have to have that kind of back and forth, you know, ping pong motion when it comes to that sort of loyalty so that you don't get into a situation where you're wearing an oversized hat with a logo from somebody who, well, isn't great. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Okay, final topic. Loyalty to family. I know that you're loyal to your family. You've already laid this out. But are you going to accept an honor march to save your brother's children if he's callously slain by the mayor of his town in Indiana? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's that social circle that I spoke about earlier. Brother, yeah. Some others, maybe not so much. I will gladly take an honor march for you, my brother. Gladly. Okay, well, Torv... The character you created for Chapter 4 is extremely loyal to his family and to his clan as a whole. Where do you think Torv sits in the Golden Mean? Is Torv's loyalty a virtue or a problem? Um, It's a problem. Stupidly a problem. (laughs) But you just agreed to do the exact same thing that Torv did. Yeah, but there's a little bit more context to Torv's actions versus a mayor and a modern society cutting my brother's head off. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, before we get too deep with Torv, let's do a recap of chapter four, shall we? Okie dokie. 
The chapter begins with a barbarian named Torv standing over the freshly slaughtered corpses of a group of strange-looking humanoids that his clan, the Ulfsun, refer to as the Boar People, or simply Boars. He has murdered this group due to a deep-seated hatred of the Boar People. This sentiment is brought on by the theory that the Boars were responsible for the destruction of a great forest that was the Ulfsun's main source of resources. The forest, once thriving, is now a barren wasteland, its quick demise occurring after an event the clan referred to as the Dark Night, where all of the light in the sky suddenly disappeared, the work of an entity the Ulfsons referred to as the Light Eater. This coincides with the Boar people venturing further from the rocky hills they inhabited, and ultimately a strange blight that decimates the flora and fauna of the Great Forest. In response, the Ulfson chieftain Sieg orders his people to kill all the Boar people claiming fertilizing the land with their blood is the only way to bring life back to the Great Forest. Torv, however, has not traveled out into the wasteland to simply murder the Boar people. Rather, he's there on a journey called an Honor March, where a person is tasked with an almost impossible mission as a means of regaining their honor. This mission was brought on after his brother Ural was murdered by the clan chieftain for suggesting that the clan should abandon the forest and return to their nomadic ways. Sieg, an unintelligent brute with a quick temper, is so incensed by Ural's suggestion that he decapitates him before Ural can finish his thought. Because of Ural's dishonor, Sieg orders Ural's family murdered. Torv steps in and demands an honor march on his brother's behalf, and offers to kill the Light Eater. This is an unorthodox request, but before Sieg can respond, Torv storms out of the meeting house, gathers his supplies, and leaves the village. As Torv is heading towards the mountains, he discovers a boar child hiding in a tree stump. He decides to capture the child and have it lead him to the boar people's colony, a Trojan horse-style approach that will allow him to pursue his mission without killing everyone in his path. Along the way, he discovers a clear icy river, the land surrounding it showing little impact from the blight. Investigating further, he discovers a dam separating the clean water from dark sludgy ooze. Torv does not understand how it works, but it appears to be purifying the water, which in turn is starting to bring back life to the forest. They eventually make their way to the boar colony, and are met by a group of boars led by a strange man with a long beard and soft features, unlike anyone Torv has ever seen. The man questions Torv about why he's come, and Torv offers up the child, claiming he found it in the waste and is bringing it back in good faith. The man thanks him, but not trusting the barbarian, asks Torv to leave. This angers Torv as he expects something in return for saving the child. The man quickly points out that the Olfsons have murdered countless boars, so the return of the child should make them square. He then orders Torv to leave, which angers Torv further, causing him to lash out and grab the man by the throat. Before he can react, the man incapacitates Torv with a blue flower that causes paralysis. The man goes on to tell Torv that he and his clan's actions are misguided, and that the boars have nothing to do with the death of the Great Forest. Torv doesn't understand, so the man orders the boars to drag Torv into a nearby cavern. Once inside, Torv is surprised to find a thriving ecosystem, one fueled by a bright sun shining through a massive mirror hung high above them. The cave is full of plants and animals, some recognizable and some unknown to Torv. The man goes on to explain that he is able to travel between worlds through special portals, and that the ecosystem in the cave is a result of ideas gathered across these many worlds. He tells Torv that he and the boars were actually trying to save the forest, and that the blight was caused by a strange creature that also came through a portal. Before he can explain further, the man tells Torv that some of his clan have followed him to the cavern, which enrages him as interrupting an honor march is against everything his people stand for. Despite understanding that the Olvson have become a shadow of what they once were due to Sieg's leadership, 
he will not turn against his people. When he arrives in the jail, he discovers Ja and Kaya are also locked up. Kaya tries to talk to him, but he cannot understand her language. Frustrated, she gives up, but their attention is soon drawn to the sounds of the Olfsen invading the cave. Okay, let's start with the rolls for this chapter. You rolled a 17, a tenuous bond is formed, and I rolled a natural 20. A new adventure begins. When we rolled these outcomes, you said that you already had some ideas for the chapter, and that the roll of A New Adventure Begins sort of messed those up. What did you originally have planned, and how did this role change the course of writing the chapter? Originally, I figured, even though we'd kind of talked about needing to jump into a different section or maybe a different group of characters relatively soon, I wanted to explore John, Kaya, in this new world, you know, from their perspective, because I thought we had a good flow going with that. You know, every chapter up until that point was them reacting to a dangerous world that they either didn't understand or they couldn't deal with themselves because they don't have the right skill set or whatnot. A new adventure to me would indicate that they had to kind of get out of that world relatively quick because that world has been established in the previous chapter. So that that kind of threw me off a little bit, but it forced us into a new character, which I think we probably needed to some degree to get some other perspective on the worlds that we were existing in. Okay, yeah. So the new adventure for you forced a new protagonist into the story because you didn't think that you could make a new adventure just with Jaw and Kaya based on where my chapter ended. Exactly. Where your chapter ended was kind of opening up, explaining what was going on. And also there's another another aspect of, you know, John Kaya, I mean, their whole reality is a big adventure moving from one world to another. <laughs> so a new adventure also had to kind of pull away from that, even though that's kind of a weird thing to say, you know, because a new world is a new adventure. But um, I needed to kind of put a little bit of a spin on it. Sure. Okay, so that explains why we have Torv and the Ulvsen. In general, the Ulvsen are pretty hard to empathize with. Yeah. Every member of the clan we're introduced to is a brute, and as a people, they seem to use violence to solve all of their problems. How do you expect readers to relate to these people? Are we supposed to be rooting for them, or against them, or neither? So, one of the key aspects of creating quote-unquote horror story is to highlight how people's psyche or their actions begin to transform as they deal with kind of a horrific scenario. It's tropey, but you always see the person who feels like they're in control suddenly lose it halfway through because they can't comprehend, you know, what what's happening. Mm-hmm. So the Olsen are kind of like that idea, but spread to a people who've existed in kind of a horrible place for a very, very long time. And I don't know if I really want the readers to empathize with them. I want them to understand that like there's not a very comfortable approach to any of these worlds that John and Kaya ultimately go to. I mean, the impression I'm given in this chapter is like things are tough across the board, and it gives a little bit more kind of significance to these people traveling because they have to make pretty hard decisions. And whereas in the previous chapters, people were sacrificed to allow for a society to continue, in the case of the Olfsen, they have to become hard and like, stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I didn't really want people to empathize too much with them because there's, you know, again, it's it's kind of a harsh life. Like empathy is a relatively new concept because we have the time to do that. 
back in the day, I'm not sure if people really did so much, which is why Dark Ages and before were kind of sucky, you know? <laughs> sure. Torv is our first problematic protagonist in this story. John and Kaya definitely make mistakes, like Jaws' inquisitiveness in the bottom of the cave accidentally awakening a giant monster, but they aren't foundationally problematic, like our new friend Torv. What made you want to add a protagonist who imprisons children and is actively committing genocide against the people who refuse to fight back? That whole concept was kind of a little bit of a, a twist. It's kind of a little bit of a, of a poke at action movies where like this big, strong guy solves every issue by like just killing people. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting take on it. Torv is also sort of like a Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers style character. He's, he is the horror of this chapter. And I <laughs> thought it was really interesting to like make him a protagonist because I always thought it, the, the concept of one of those mask serial killers from the 70s, like what happened if somebody influenced them positively from a young life or what happens if, you know, they didn't go full evil? And so there's a little bit of conflict with him, but he's the result of a group of people trying to survive and convincing themselves that the only way they can survive is if they kill other people, which may or may not be a nod to modern society in some ways as well. <laughs> <laughs> so opposite of Torv, you also introduced a mysterious man in this chapter who can move between the realms and is capable of fixing this world's problems. You wrote him as kind of a smarmy know-it-all who talks down to Torv for the entire second half of the chapter. Do you think you did this either consciously or subconsciously because you don't like Torv very much and wanted to talk down to him yourself? No, actually, in my mind, that man was kind of my definition of what an intelligent person, how they would function when coming face to face with someone who is like messing every one of their, like, <laughs> you know, like they've solved the issue. They're saving the forest and this dumb dumb comes through and like breaks everything. So I think that guy's swarminess was kind of more like holding in his absolute frustration. You know, it's like explaining to a group of muscle heads that, yeah, you know, just unlock the door. Don't try to pull it off the hinges, just unlock <laughs> it and you're good to go. I think there's a little bit of like frustration with him, but this is also somebody who has gone to all these different worlds and keeps running into these dum-dums who are just full brute force. And so this guy's also kind of symbolic of really, really intelligent people that they themselves can't lower themselves a bit to kind of relate with those around them. So it's kind of, a, I don't know, it's kind of a duality to him. That's interesting because that's not really how I read that character. I saw him as sort of smarmy and... I didn't get a lot of satisfaction from him talking down to Torv, because as soon as he did, then I didn't really like either of them, even though I empathized a lot more with the gray-haired man. Yeah. And because of this, I thought you did a fabulous job of filling this chapter with unlikable characters, Yeah, except for the Gamla, which I thought was really great, because I introduced this world with a hideous-looking darkness cult. And you took that idea and ran with it and made them the most likable characters in this entire world, which I think is really great. Like, by comparison to the Ulfsen, the Gamla seems so much better. Yeah. And I think, again, like, if you go back to Torv and this mysterious man, they both represent people with influence. And they both represent people with influence on different sides of the spectrum, intelligence and strength, I guess. 
And the Gommler are just trying to do their best. I mean, they were doing okay. They were kind of struggling. But then these characters come in and kind of mess with their world a little bit. Now, they've defaulted to intelligence because intelligence is actually providing... Intelligence is more fruitful here. But I think that society can be intrinsically horrific and everybody in it is just conditioned to be horrific. Society can also be swayed in one way or another. And I feel like the Gamla are sort of there to survive themselves, but haven't taken the same steps as like, you know, John Kaya's people or the Olsen, you know? And I don't know, we kind of need sort of an Ewoky type <laughs> character in there as well, you know? <laughs> yeah, I like the angle that you took with this. It is not what I would have expected from the cliffhanger at the end of my chapter. You and I have made some interesting choices with the stipulations that we gave each other in the first episode of the podcast. I said that we couldn't add any romance to the story, and then immediately created an adventure with a pubescent boy and a slightly older woman. (laughs) And your original stipulation, which you explained but then didn't use because you said that our prehistoric time period negated it, was that you were going to quote, push us away from being so stuck in environmental themes. (laughs) There was absolutely nothing from my previous chapter that necessitated your new adventure be about a tribe suffering from their natural environment dying, but that's exactly where you went. Why do you think that is? Um, Because it was a very easy way to create a misunderstanding that fueled Torv in the direction of a make-believe light-consuming entity. (laughs) Again, it's food, man. Like, I guess at the end of the day, it could have been anything. Like, it could have been a blight that killed the creatures or whatnot. Like, the Olsen had to have a motivation to kind of just go a little bit nuts and actually take this journey. Because other than, I don't know, that sense of like, oh, let's just go and kill something, it had to be a little bit more realistically motivated. And I mean, I think the environmental themes, it, it was less saying... Because nobody was trying to kill the forest, I guess is why I didn't see it as like an environmental theme. Like, both sides wanted the forest to survive. One side was just a bit smarter about the approach to it, you know what I mean? But like, I guess, I don't know, maybe sometimes it's tough to get away from how your environment conditions you or motivates you to make certain decisions. So I didn't have like a a corporate CEO fly through in a helicopter and like spray diesel all over the forest. So I think I avoided right. it. <laughs> and maybe your opinion of it would be different if in the next chapter I introduce some aquatic eco-terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> With fish faces? <laughs> this chapter seems like it was a tough one to force out of the old imagination, Ethan. You want to take a seat in the corner and talk about it? Okie dokie. It's the corner of self-doubt. My corner of self-doubt is about the idea of introducing a new character in the fourth chapter. I knew that we had to step away from John Kaya because of the roles. And I felt like, just as you pointed out earlier, like they're at least somewhat likable. Like they're 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 doing their best, they're struggling. And to create a character like Torv, who isn't very likable, is, is is a little bit difficult. But I also wanted to have like an interesting twist at that point, you know? That being said, I realized about halfway through the chapter, I was like, oh, I have this barbarian. Where'd he come from? Well, he has to have a tribe. So I needed to put in a little bit of the tribe. And then I was like, well, why is he just roaming out in the wasteland? And so I had to add all this backstory and context and whatnot. And before I knew it, you know, the chapter, which I kind of wanted to be a pretty quick 
10 pages was at like 14, 15. I don't know. I was a little bit unsure about how much backstory we wanted to add to this because that's what kind of got us in trouble or got me in trouble with the last book that we did is that I kind of painted myself into a corner because I introduced characters and had to explain them because they were from a completely different part of the world, which Torv and his clan happened to be. Like they were completely different. You know, there was no sort of relation we could have between them and where John Kaya came from. So I definitely thought the length and kind of the pace sort of fought against each other a little bit, which is why it took me a little bit longer to kind of push through it. I, I, I wrote the first draft in like three days. Like it was really quick, but then after that, I really had to come back and say, okay, what is the point? And that's really tough. Fourth chapter is, is a momentum chapter. And I think this one did it, but it took a couple goes at it. Yeah, the new adventure role was tricky because if Torv is going to be an integral part of the story moving forward and the new adventure is his adventure, then you have to give him some sort of backstory so that his story has resonance. But you also don't want to just create all of this new backstory that is essentially a flashback so early in the story. But I think you did a good job of finding a balance between enough backstory to give Torv's actions reason to the reader without getting mired in flashback. Yeah, which the original draft was mired in flashback. (laughs) (laughs) It was like maybe three and a half pages of actual things happening and like a bunch of like, looking back on what brought him there. And I mean, Torv is not an introspective person. So that (laughs) adds a level of complication onto it anyway. You know, I mean, I think having this prehistoric or this primal setting does sort of prevent us from going back too much because it's tough for like, it's tough for somebody with a limited vocabulary and a limited level of intelligence to be very thoughtful about their history. You know what I mean? Sure. (laughs) The next chapter is mine to tell. And you gave me a whole new adventure to build off of. But simply continuing the story of your genocidal barbarians is not enough, Ethan. First, the Fate Index had to tell me what I was and was not allowed to do with them. Let's go back in time and find out a couple directives for how I may or may not be able to mess with this clan full of bullies that I don't particularly care for. (laughs) Hello, Ethan, that time forgot. Hi. That kind of made me feel bad about myself, like the time my parents forgot me at baseball practice. (laughs) Yeah, I just meant that like this version of Ethan is lost to time. (laughs) You weren't uprooting childhood trauma? (laughs) Not on purpose. (laughs) I wouldn't mind if I forgot today, if time forgot today, because I worked too hard today and it was supposed to be Pizza Friday and I forgot to make a pizza. (laughs) There's a lot of forgetting that happened today. So today can just go away forever. (laughs) But what can't go away is our need for roles. Yep. We need the Fade Index to tell us what to do. Yep. Shall I go first? I would love for you to. Okay. I have rolled a seven. This one finally showed up. A great artifact of the past is found, calling to a new owner. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, this was given to us by a listener very early on in the first season. And I always wanted to put it into the story. And we joked about great artifacts of the past happening in prehistory in caveman times. (laughs) So I don't know what sort of artifact it's going to be that they found. It clearly can't be anything that has very much technology in it. But this is a fun role. It's going to be a 
a petrified stick with a face on it. It's going to have no, <laughs> no significance at all. <laughs> yes. You found my stick, Jambi. <laughs> Jambi is home again. Welcome back, Jambi. <laughs> Jambi has great power. <laughs> Just a poking stick, that's all. Mm-hmm. Okay, should I go ahead and give it a roll? Yes, please do. Okie dokie. Let's do it. I've got a four. A four. Protagonist's identity is thrown into question. Ooh. Also a fun one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So following up on your chapter, I mean, that could easily be Torv. Yeah. But all of our protagonists are in a place where their reality is quite brittle. Yeah. And so, you know, their identity could easily be thrown into question from just about anything. I don't trust Kaya. I'm sorry to tell you that. Well, the fabric of Jaws' reality is going to be completely shattered by the new stick Jambi. <laughs> or maybe he truly is the Jambi, and the stick just brings out the best of him. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got a lot to think about here. You do. <laughs> All right, let's send it back to the future. Boop, 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 boop. Wow, I sounded really tired back then, huh? You were exhausted. Little did I know that I was going to get the coronavirus not long after that and learn what the true meaning of exhaustion really is. (laughs) You got corona, I got the flu. Hopefully our plague worlds are ending soon. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Brain fog is not conductive to creativity. (laughs) I learned that firsthand. (laughs) Now that we have the rules for Chapter 5... Let's take a look at the newest listener submissions for the Fade Index. Okie dokie. This time around, we crowdsource these submissions from friends and family who were trapped with us at the Thanksgiving table. First, replacing a number 17, something a character thought was important turns out to be totally unnecessary. (laughs) And that is thanks to Jay. (laughs) So there's a real life story behind this one. Jay gave me this idea based on something I had just told him about Thanksgiving which I learned since moving to Europe, which is that my wife and I always thought that you just couldn't make pumpkin pie unless you had a can of Libby's pumpkin pie mix. Some real brand loyalty. This is like total propaganda brand loyalty. Somehow we had been programmed to believe that there was simply no way you could make a pumpkin pie without this can of pie mix. This is entirely wrong. (laughs) Fresh fruits and vegetables are always better than those in a can And this is true for pumpkin pie as well. A roasted Hokkaido pumpkin in place of the canned puree in a can makes a much better pie. Wow. I have no idea how this idea is going to relate to our protagonists, but I am excited to find out, and I am thankful that (laughs) Jay put this idea into the Fate Index. (laughs) I like it. That seems like a lot of effort for a pumpkin pie, my man. Roasting the pumpkin is extremely easy. You cut it in half and you stick it in a baking dish and leave it there for a while, then scoop it out and you're done. Or you just open a can. But yeah, to each their own. You can't get the cans here. That's the problem. Oh, you got, okay. There's no Thanksgiving in Germany, so you have to go to a special store and pay like $7 for a can of Libby's pumpkin pie mix. Totally unnecessary. You can talk to Aubrey about how much money she spent when we did Thanksgiving <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, you're 100% right on that. <laughs> okay. Replacing number 20, cat eat food. And this is from your son, Milo. (laughs) 
Milo is how old? He's three years old now? Two years old? He's three now. Just turned He's three, three last week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Milo gave us cat eat food. <laughs> I'm really excited for what we can do with this somewhat vague and strangely worded submission. I feel like we can use our imaginations to do something great with this. Oh, I think so too. I think it it's a nice one. It, 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 puts, it puts a wrench in the gears a little bit, but that's what the whole story is about. We haven't had one of those yet, and now we have our first one. Compliments of my son. Thanks, Milo. I don't feel like this one throws a wrench in the gears at all. I mean, it necessitates that some sort of cat be added into the story, and that it eats something. But you can really twist that in infinite exciting ways. Well, I mean, do we have cats in this reality? Every chapter is a new reality. Yeah, I guess that's... Is, is there a reality of just cats? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. I hope I get this role. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like this role rules. Thank you, three-year-old. This is a very good submission. <laughs> Thank you to everybody else who has been listening to the podcast. People who are submitting Fate Index ideas without us cornering them at the dinner table. We appreciate you. Everybody else who's listening and wants to get their ideas in, drop us a line on social media or send us an email to thecoolstoryguys at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye.